Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Rachel Bittekoffer, political strategist, analyst, and author, who assesses the danger for democracy as Donald Trump explicitly embraces political violence while facing multiple indictments for state and federal crimes. Ebony Martin co-executive director of Greenpeace USA, and Rose Abramoff of the group Scientist Rebellion, who address a National Day of Action to Stop Dirty Banks rally in Washington, D.C. on March 21st. And Bettina Hager of the ERA Coalition, who talks about efforts now underway to pass state resolutions supporting the Equal Rights Amendment and the future impact of the ERA on issues of pay equity and reproductive rights. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. French President Emmanuel Macron survived a narrow no-confidence vote after forcing through an unpopular pension reform law, avoiding a vote in the National Assembly. Macron's decision to invoke a provision of the Constitution which gives the government power to bypass Parliament has enraged many and led to mass protests of millions of people across France. Macron appeared on TV to defend his pension law that will raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 for most French workers, but his speech only served to increase the outrage. The working-class protest movement led by French unions and the left bloc in Parliament has nearly brought France to a standstill, with closures of schools and airports in addition to an ongoing garbage workers' strike in Paris. The Guardian reports that French trade unions have pledged to intensify strikes and street demonstrations that have been ongoing since January. Female workers, especially those in poorly paid and part-time jobs, say they will bear the brunt of changes to the pension system and will now have to work even longer than their male colleagues for lower benefits. In his February 7th State of the Union address, President Joe Biden declared that COVID no longer controls our lives, adding that while the virus is not gone, we have broken COVID's grip on us. On May 11th, the Biden administration will end the federal government's official designation of COVID as a public health emergency. This act will close the state's assumed primary responsibility for the pandemic and its effects and herald the beginning of the next era of COVID, one where the private market rules the pandemic response. Millions of Americans are experiencing the disabling effects of long covid The official policy for medically vulnerable populations, such as the disabled, the immunocompromised, and older people, is that they politely remove themselves from society. In These Times magazine observes that, in effect, the Biden administration is throwing COVID into the arms of the U.S. private insurance market, shifting both the payer and the responsibility to our predatory and extractive for-profit health care system. 
costs will rise, the uninsured and underinsured will face tough economic choices, and pandemic-related resources will be stratified and rationed by a person's ability to pay, like everything else in America's dysfunctional privatized healthcare system. In 2019, the college town of Ithaca, New York, took a bold pledge to go green, setting a goal of going carbon neutral by 2030. The shift required weatherizing and retrofitting Ithaca's aging buildings, tearing out boilers and gas stoves, and installing heat pumps in some 6,000 buildings. The trick was finding a way to finance Ithaca's Green New Deal with one-third of the city's residents living under the poverty line. The city brought in Luis Aguirre Torres, who led international green finance initiatives, to manage the program. The American Prospect reports that early on, $100 million in private capital was raised. But this was in the days of low interest rates that disappeared after the Federal Reserve boosted those rates. However, climate funding from President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act has helped bolster Ithaca's decarbonization initiative. The American Prospect reports that the financial industry is eyeing the emergence of clean energy as a service, where profit margins are slim for now, but agreements could last in perpetuity. Ithaca is an early case study of how, due to the design of the Inflation Reduction Act, the future of the green energy transition will depend on deals made between building owners, small cities, and Wall Street, the terms of which are only now beginning to be negotiated. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. For the first rally of his 2024 presidential campaign, Donald Trump chose Waco, Texas, the site of the federal siege of the Branch Davidian compound there 30 years ago, where religious cult leader David Koresh resisted arrest on weapons charges that led to a standoff that killed 86 of his followers, including 26 children, many by suicide. The 1993 Waco siege became a call to arms for many right-wing militia and domestic terrorist groups, including Timothy McVeigh, who bombed the Oklahoma City Federal Building that killed 168 people on the second anniversary of the fire that destroyed Koresh's Waco compound. In the days before his Waco rally, Trump warned on social media posts of death and destruction if he's criminally charged in a New York hush money case and issued repeated stochastic terrorist calls for his cult supporters to remove what he called the animal, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, picturing himself with a baseball bat next to a photo of Bragg. During his Waco speech, Trump hailed the January 6 insurrectionists that killed five and injured more than 100 Capitol Police officers as patriots and promised to deliver retribution for the supposed wrongs inflicted on his overwhelmingly white Christian supporters. Many Republican politicians have echoed Trump's threats by angrily condemning Alvin Bragg's prosecution of the former president or remain silent in the face of Trump's blatant call for violence. 
Your reporter spoke with Rachel Bittekoffer, a political strategist, analyst, and author who assesses the danger for U.S. democracy as Donald Trump explicitly embraces political violence while facing multiple indictments for state and federal crimes. Well, it certainly is uh, impossible seeming to all of us here who reside on Earth One, okay? But I mention that because there is an Earth Two, and that Earth Two is an articulated echo chamber that was created, I think, for pretty honest purposes. Its initial uh, inception of conservative media was, oh, you know, the culture is leaving us behind and we need a safe space, right? But it ended up evolving into a Frankenstein. And what what has occurred now is that we're not dealing with a nomination that's going to occur in an electorate in which you know, candidates are going to have competing ideas for hearts and minds, and, and the best candidate will prevail. What we're dealing with on the political right right now is a long-term and pretty intensive mass psychosis event that comes from this information silo. And it's very important for people to understand that, because if you engage with MAGA at all, you know, on social media or in real life, you're going to find that they're very insistent about certain facts. And no matter what you say to them factually wise, it doesn't resonate. Uh, They'll find some other fact to harp on or they'll ignore your point and pivot an attack with some kind of other counterfactual, usually about Hunter Biden. So when you're dealing with that kind of scenario, you're not going to get out simply. Um, We can't turn off the pump, the poison pump. And we know this from the Dominion lawsuits that it is intentional poison. They know what they're doing and they are uh, doing it on quite on purpose of Fox News, which is, by the way, the sole and only information source that Republicans identify as a trustworthy news outlet. And this is a problem that started before Donald Trump. You can see the decline in trust of media as conservative media started to rise and discounted other media forms. It lowered trust, especially amongst Republican identifiers. But now, you know, with Donald Trump, the press is the enemy of the people. Don't believe your lying eyes. Everything they say is a lie. It has become even more pronounced on the right. And so we've got an indicted, soon to be, you know, multiply indicted serial criminal who tried to overthrow the government last time he was in office running. And yet Republican voters, at least a, a large chunk of them in, in polling data, seem perfectly willing to return him to power. And uh, I think it's important for people to understand that that's a sickness or a disease that is not just, you know, focused in political elites. It's, it has evaded or pervaded into mass political behavior, and it's a very dangerous phenomenon. In your view, Rachel, what what is an effective way we, as just normal citizens concerned about the future of democracy, can fight back? Because I think an occasional angry Twitter post or emails to your friends or, you know, using social media in general is not going to change the world. What do we need to do? And I, I would just throw this in here. We've seen enormous protests in the streets in places like Israel and France. I'm wondering if you understand, you know, from your your study of history, especially in, in the 20s and 30s, what we need to do now to effectively fight back. So militias are a major red flag. Um, you know, the, the storming of the Capitol, major red flag. We're already quite far down that hill of autocracy. 
And I like to think that, like Israel, we will show up big. But here's the answer to your question. What should everyone be doing? Obviously, the most important thing is to keep Republicans from having political power and any at any level right now. Right. So the radicalized parties, radicalized from the school board and the mayor's office all the way up to the federal legislature and to Congress. So it's very important that we do everything that we can everywhere that we can to elect Democrats over Republicans, especially in this next cycle, 2024, which will be critical to determining, you know, uh, this is not a party you want to have executive control of the government right now, right? So that's the most important thing. But the other important thing is this, and this is the takeaway from my history, and and again, the the big takeaway I hope people get from the series. If we do not panic now, it will be too late. The common thread in Italy, in Japan, in Russia, in uh, Nazi Germany, all of these places that I've studied, some of them falling under left-wing totalitarianism, some of them falling under the right, is one thing, though, binds them all. And that is when there was time to panic, the status quo was there's an optimism bias that humans have that, you know, things won't get that bad, things can't possibly happen like that. That is our major hurdle. And so what everyone who's hearing my voice, our voices today can do is start talking to your friends, to your family, to your relatives, to your cool coworkers. Don't, I'm not talking about MAGA true believers, but I'm talking about everybody else. And tell them about democratic emergency and make sure they understand the stakes of this next election because it could not be higher. That was Rachel Bittekoffer, a political strategist and analyst whose soon-to-be-published book is titled Hidden Where It Hurts. Find a link to Bittercoffer's Cycle Substack page and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On March 21st, protests targeting the nation's four largest banks took place in more than 100 cities across the U.S. These banks, Chase, Citibank, Wells Fargo and Bank of America finance fossil fuel projects, which are a major contributor to climate chaos. The national protest was organized by Third Act, a new organization founded by writer and climate activist Bill McKibben that invites people over 60 to take action on safeguarding democracy and confronting the climate crisis. The action in Washington, D.C., included a 24-hour rocking chair vigil in front of four neighboring bank branches, two short marches, a rally, and the nonviolent civil disobedience blockade of a Chase and Wells Fargo bank. Hundreds took part in a symbolic die-in in the intersection between the banks. The rally featured Third Act founder Bill McKibben, former executive director of the NAACP and the new head of the Sierra Club, Ben Jealous, and other speakers, skits, and music. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus participated in the action and was arrested the following day with nine others as they conducted a sit-in inside a Chase Bank. There they condemned the bank's investments in fossil fuel projects, citing the just-released Dyer report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We hear from two speakers at the rally, Earth scientist Rose Abramoff with the group Scientist Rebellion, followed by co-executive director of Greenpeace USA, Ebony Martin.
I'm an activist, but I'm also a scientist. Um, and as previously alluded, I was fired earlier this year for holding up a banner at an earth science conference uh, with my colleague, Peter Kalmus, another earth scientist. The banner said, out of the lab and into the streets. And we held that banner for about 30 seconds. And for that, I was fired. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm telling you this story, though, to explain why more of us scientists aren't out here in the streets with you. It's because we are, by and large, compelled by our institutions to remain neutral, even in the face of environmental devastation. And for over 40 years, most of us have complied. So on behalf of the scientific community, I apologize for our cowardice. I was inspired to become a scientist by my elders. And in fact, Bill McKibben, who is here today, actually came to my campus center, my college campus center, when I was an undergraduate, then as a representative of 350.org. 350 referring to the goal of bringing the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere down below 350 parts per million. That year, 2009, it was 388 parts per million, and now we are at 420 parts per million and rising. So in the 14 years since then, I've learned what is basically summarized by the IPCC report, which was released yesterday, which is that climate change is an existential threat to humanity. In the next 10-year period, we expect to exceed the Paris Agreement goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, at which point several tipping points become more likely than not. Widespread death of corals, abrupt melting of permafrost, collapse of the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets. We measure our wealth using an index which measures how much we produce, throw away, and then produce again, as opposed to how much we have or whether we have what we need to survive. And there are so many people in this country and in the countries that we have economically colonized that don't have what they need to survive and are already suffering from the worst effects of climate change. And so two options await us in the immediate future, climate crisis or climate revolution. I hope today you take this as an opportunity to prepare each other for sustained action. Let's choose revolution. Thank you. Also, we need some more rocking chair people. So if you want to join a rocking chair re rebellion, please, you know, help us after the rally in this quarter where we will prepare for that. Okay. End of announcement. Greenpeace could have no better leader than the new executive director of Greenpeace, Ebony Martin. $4.62 trillion. $4.62 trillion. That is how much that the banks have invested in the fossil fuel industry since the Paris Agreement. This is the same industry that knew that oil and gas has caused this climate crisis. This is the same industry that knew people would suffer, especially black and brown communities. This is the same industry that knew that our planet would be devastated by continued extraction and production. This is the same industry that hid the science. They lied to us and blocked solutions for clean and renewable energy. This is the same industry that's linked to 8.5 million deaths globally in 2018 alone. And that doesn't even begin to quantify the catastrophic impacts we continue to face every day, year after year. We have 100-year floods 
now occurring every five years. Our air is polluted. Our skies are red from fires. We are being burned out of our houses. Our aunties have cancer. Our babies has asthma. And this is all from the fossil fuel industry that the banks continue to fund. Well, we are here today to say, not on our watch. Say it with me, not on our watch. Where can that 4.62 trillion go? We want that back in our healthcare systems so that people can get access. We want that money back into our education systems so that our children can thrive. We want that money invested back in black and brown and working class communities so that they can have the livelihood and health that they deserve. That was Ebony Martin, co-executive director of Greenpeace USA, preceded by Rose Abramoff of the group Scientists Rebellion, speaking at the Stop Dirty Banks rally in Washington, D.C. on March 21st. Learn more about Third Act's climate and democracy campaigns by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. With support from both Democrats and Republicans, the U.S. Congress passed the Equal Rights Amendment in 1972 that states equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. But after passing the House and Senate, the proposed amendment fell short of the three-fourths majority of states, 38, that were needed to ratify it before a seven-year deadline set by Congress. Although that deadline was extended by three years, no new states ratified the ERA. Complicating matters, five states later voted to rescind their earlier ERA ratification, which scholars say is not legally valid. Since 2017, three states, Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia, voted to ratify the ERA, totaling 38 states. But the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled that the congressional deadline on the ERA was legally binding, so the later three ratifications cannot be counted. ERA supporters argue that Congress now has the power to lift the deadline. A new congressional caucus was launched on March 28th, focused on enshrining the ERA as the 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Your reporter spoke with Bettina Hager, Washington, D.C. director of the ERA Coalition, who talks about efforts now underway to pass resolutions supporting the ERA in more than a dozen U.S. states and the future impact of a ratified ERA on issues of pay equity and reproductive rights. We're working with legislators who know the law. They know how to, how to create laws and how the laws. So legislators across the country are introducing resolutions where they're affirming that the ERA is the 28th Amendment, and they're calling on the archivist to publish the ERA to make it formal. So we have over a dozen states that have introduced ERA-related bills. Some of them are states that never ratified, some of the 12 states that didn't ratify, but then the vast majority of them are states that have ratified, but who are calling on Congress to act, um, the archivist to publish so that all of the work that they did and that, and that the people who have cared about this issue for so many, 100 years, 
can be recognized and, and this tool to protect against sex discrimination can be used in courts. So we have states from Arizona to Hawaii to New Mexico, Tennessee, Illinois, you know, legislators all over the country who are saying that this is such an important issue that they want to take a stand and they want to do whatever they can to make it known that across the country, people want to see this in our Constitution. Bettina, I wanted to ask you, what are the areas that if we had this national ratification and the ERA was to be attached to our U.S. Constitution, how would it make a difference in women's lives and all of our citizens' lives in the future? I mean, there are so many ways that the ERA would make a difference. And I think part of it is that it would just send a really bold message to society that this is like a principle of importance to our country. It also gives Congress the ability to create laws. Um, The second section of the ERA says that Congress can use the amendment to create appropriate legislation to enforce uh, the amendment. And so it would give Congress the ability to create laws that could have stronger protections against sex-based violence. It could also lead to stronger protections for workplace issues, workplace discrimination, workplace harassment. You know, our hope would be that it could be used even to create better laws around pay equity, parental and family paid leave. A lot of the things that for other countries around the world are just no-brainers, but for us, we're still not there yet. Uh, And those are the the places that I see the ERA really immediately being able to, to be used. And Bettina, of course, reproductive rights, abortion, even contraception seem to be a target of the Republican Party and conservative movements in the country generally. How would the ERA, if it was in in force in our Constitution, how would it impact those opponents of women's reproductive rights? So the ERA is incredibly important to so many areas of reproductive justice. The question of, you know, I have a lot of people say to me, oh, will it, you know, change things back to before the Dow's decision with Roe? I don't know that, only because we have to look at who's on our current Supreme Court. It may not be this Supreme Court that would use the ERA to reinstate the protections that we no longer have under Roe, but there is a very strong equality argument for women's bodily autonomy that can be used under the Equal Rights Amendment, and one that I know many of our partners and many of the advocates that are in the reproductive justice space are developing and making. But the recent Dobbs decision kind of even went beyond that question and and really touched on if sex discrimination is at all protected in our Constitution. And so it is one of those things where we know that they're linked. You know, so people who don't want women to have bodily autonomy are the same people who are saying, well, should they even be recognized as being protected at all? So we know that there's a link between them. You know, the immediate question of how it's used is a little bit more complicated because it's up to the courts. But the ERA will undoubtedly be important to reproductive justice, which includes things like economics, um, access to health care. There are so many ways that this is incredibly important in this current moment that we're in where we're seeing our rights being taken away to keep that from moving forward. That was Bettina Hager, Washington, D.C. director of the ERA Coalition. Learn more about the campaign to enshrine the ERA 
as the 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPP in Athens, Georgia, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, KIDE in Hoopa, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.